Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Michael Breidenbach. He teaches history at the Ave Maria University. He's co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment and Religious Liberty. His new book is Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Welcome, Professor Breidenbach. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. You say that in colonial America, quote, Catholics were presumed dangerous until proven loyal. Was, was the suspicion that strong? It was, um, at least at a theoretical level, as practice in law, um, they were considered to, to be dangerous until proven loyal. Um, and I think you find this especially in the 1606 Oath of Allegiance in England. This, of course, was um, passed uh, directly after uh, the Gunpowder Plot of 1605, in which Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators uh, attempted to assassinate um, the king uh, in Parliament. And... Um, after this episode, which had been uh, later memorialized uh, in England um, across the British uh, Commonwealth later on uh, in bombing the, uh, burning the Pope in effigy and so on, uh, this had presented a, a, a challenge uh, to the very existence of, of the king. It was seen as a, uh, um, a, a sectarian act of violence. And so after this, the Oath of Allegiance said that uh, you had to swear allegiance to the king, of course, but also certain doctrines that were deemed, as the oath put it, damnable. Uh, and that concerned papal authority, in particular the pope's authority to intervene in the temporal affairs of England. And uh, this authority had been practiced um, before um, the excommunication of Queen Elizabeth, um, the uh, nullification of Magna Carta, and um, this had been in a long train of what uh, later Protestants would see as an abuse of papal prerogative. And so any Catholic in England who presented him or herself as, as an open Catholic would be immediately suspect. Now, of course, um, in the literature, this had been uh, exaggerated uh, to an extent insofar as uh, people have said that every Catholic was treated uh, badly. Um, of course, that's not true. There were uh, covert Catholics, Catholics who uh, could practice their faith uh, secretively, but uh, more or less safely, as long as they uh, weren't terribly open about it. Um, but the reality was that um, this ever-present, um, uh, this ever-present possibility that the state could exact uh, at times lethal, uh, um, uh, punitive um, damages on uh, your you or your family meant that Catholics had to continue to uh, be covert about it or, as often is the case, convert to the established church to avoid these penalties. Did, were they sometimes required to make an open 
repudiate, well, maybe not repudiation of the Pope's authority, but explicitly say, I acknowledge the laws of my state, my country, as more binding than what the Vatican decrees. Would that, I mean, you can stay Catholic as long as you made it clear that you, you understood what should be at the top. Well, that certainly was King James I's open position when he uh, promulgated the Oath of Allegiance. He wanted to, as he said, mark good subjects from bad subjects. And he countenanced Catholics as possibly good subjects. At least that was the public position. But of course, Pope Pius uh, said that any Catholic who signed or affirmed, swore this oath, would be ipso facto excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So English Catholics had uh, the two unenviable options of heresy or treason. And so given these uh, positions, I think um, it's fair to say that Catholics were in a state of uncertainty about their liberty, a state of uncertainty about their prospects uh, in England for a kind of civil, tolerant um, existence. Did the uncertainty provoke many of them to flee to the colonies? Well, the, the problem with fleeing to the colonies, of course, is that this oath of allegiance loomed large on those who wanted to flee England. Ship searchers, those who uh, were the ones to, as it were, sign off on anyone going to what they called the New World, had to swear the oath of allegiance, right, or, or, or issue the oath of allegiance to anyone aboarding the ship. So if you're an English Catholic at this, at this time, you could continue your tenuous existence or take the risk to, you know, try to aboard the ship, perhaps without taking the oath, um, or take the oath and hopefully in good conscience think that this is okay to, to swear. And this is exactly what uh, Catholics who wanted to set sail to Maryland had to face. They had to make the decision whether to go on this, this new project of a tolerant colony where both Protestants and Catholics would be welcome, and indeed, in the case of Maryland, encouraged to come and settle, um, or continue to live in England and perhaps receive uh, bits of toleration uh, from, from future uh, monarchs. And so what I found in, in, the, in the archives in London, and this is, this is new um, archival evidence, I found that George and Cecil Calvert tried to change this 1606 Oath of Allegiance. Remember, this is one of the most controversial documents in English Catholic history at the time, uh, because the king and the pope had, had as it were, um, put, put their hand on, on, on the scale um, for, for either treason or heresy. And so George and Cecil Calvert, the first and second Lords Baltimore, um, wanted to uh, make this oath more palatable to Catholics who wanted to settle in their colony. And so what I found is that effectively they excised the clauses that were the most controversial, the clauses about the Pope. And this was um, actually successful in the end. If you look at the Oath of Allegiance in Maryland law in 1638, you find uh, a revised Oath of Allegiance in which the Pope is simply not mentioned. They suspend the Pope's power in a kind of holy ambiguity. Hmm. Uh, and 
what's fascinating about this is there's no other oath of allegiance amendment that had been acceptable at this time. Later on, you'll find uh, kings who are willing to uh, perhaps work with Catholics uh, to, to change the oath, but that's always uh, fraught with controversy. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's incredible about this story is that Maryland Catholics are able to find that very, very careful balance in, in order to found a new colony. And I think what's interesting about the way we understand the, the colonial um, uh, story here is that when we often think about people coming from Europe or Britain uh, and fleeing religious persecution and trying to establish a new life and, and later on codifying the Constitution, fighting the revolution and so on, we often think that this is, this is a Protestant story. And of course it is, uh, the Puritans and, and so on. Um, but neglected in this story are these Catholics who boarded that ship uh, from Gravesend, London, and uh, went through the Isle of Wight, and stopped in Barbados, and finally uh, landed in St. Mary's, what they called St. Mary's. And this was a ship of both Protestants and Catholics, um, one of the few stories of toleration. And they did it precisely because they made that kind of compromise that we find in this revised Oath of Allegiance in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Now, did the Calverts want Maryland to be a, an exclusively Catholic colony? Were they sort of maybe on the sly hoping that, you know, Protestants wouldn't be at least too numerous in the area? Well, the Protestant detractors in their colony certainly wanted to paint with a very broad brush, uh, and all in red, the way in which the Calverts wanted this to be a papist colony. They um, issued several uh, pamphlets uh, in London uh, to the Parliament later on in the 17th century, calling this uh, in league with um, the, the papists of France and Spain, um, and this is the, you know, the reliable um, character of, of uh, anti-papist um, propaganda in this, in this time period. The Calverts had a different view on this, and they certainly did not want to make this an exclusively Catholic colony either. And so, in, in fact, they received criticism from both Catholics and Protestants about this project. When one of the early colonies that uh, George Calvert founded, Avalon, in, in modern-day Newfoundland, he allowed Protestants to uh, worship in his own house, uh, which raised the ire, of course, of um, the papal nuncio in, in, in Brussels who found this ecumenical practice abhorrent. Um, and then, of course, the Jesuits in Maryland who had been brought uh, to the colony to serve uh, it, the Catholics, but of course also to evangelize Native Americans, they too uh, criticized Calvert, um, both Calverts, for their, especially Salso, um, the second Lord Baltimore, for um, not giving them the privileges and immunities they had been accustomed to in Europe. And so on every level, they received uh, criticisms for this fairly radical um, project of, of, of toleration. And in effect, uh, this was not a, a Catholic colony. Uh, it was uh, headed by a Catholic um, and as someone who took his Catholicism, from what I can tell, seriously, um, but not uh, named after uh, Our Lady, although perhaps indirectly the Virgin Mary, um, but initially for um, Henrietta Maria, the Queen Consort to Charles I. 
Uh, and so this is very much a state-building project, um, one that had to hew very closely uh, to the loyalty um, of uh, the king in order to um, continue its existence. And so this was not, emphatically not, uh, a church-state unity that Catholics had held up at that time as the ideal. Did a stream of Catholic settlers follow into Maryland as, as the Calverts hoped? They did, although colonial uh, uh, enterprises were uh, characteristically very difficult. Um, the reason why George Calvert, in the first instance, moved from uh, modern-day Canada uh, to, uh, to later Maryland is because uh, the winter was too harsh, uh, and um, more than half of the settlers died in the first year. And Maryland was uh, slightly better, especially with um, crops like tobacco, um, but it was very hard going, and it could only exist and thrive with new settlers. And so the initial uh, settlers, uh, Catholic settlers, uh, did provide them a good, as it were, model for what is possible. Um, by the time we get to the revolution of 1688, the so-called Glorious Revolution, well, I was going to ask you just about yeah. before that. So James II, sure. Charles's brother, who's Catholic, he becomes king in 1685. Did that change everything in the in in the Catholic the Catholic situation in the New World? Even if it lasted only three years until, as he said, the, the revolution. But did those three years change everything or no? Not really. Not for Maryland, because because of course the prospect of a Catholic king. Uh, who governed the Church of England um, was uh, a frightening prospect for many Protestants, um, particularly those um, uh, who wanted uh, this Catholic king out, and certainly to bar any heirs that would come from James uh, to become king and, and restore uh, a Catholic uh, monarchy. And so, um, in, in many ways, the prospect of, of, a, of a Catholic king um, doubled down the efforts of Protestants who um, were already in Maryland and agitating against the mm. Catholic uh, proprietary, uh, that is to say, the, the government, the Catholic government in Maryland. Uh, now, the Jesuits who, who came, you, you say they had a strong missionary uh, goal. How successful were they in converting the natives and also converting some Protestants in, in Maryland? Well, Cecil Calvert was um, particularly... Uh, careful um, to make sure that any priests, and uh, most of them were, were Jesuits, um, not try to proselytize too, um, too much the mm -hmm. current Protestants there. It was a, a radical experiment in toleration, as I said before, and something that uh, wouldn't happen in, in England until much later. And so the idea of Jesuits, who were the most despised um, uh, type of priest in English political culture, the fact that Jesuits were there um, meant that uh, for Protestants um, they could find in them uh, all the sort of dangers and, uh, and, um, and secret alliances that they had imagined Catholics to have um, with, with the French, with the Native Americans. So the Jesuits had to um, toe a very fine line um, between evangelizing the Native Americans but not, as it were, creating too many strong political alliances such that it looked like there was going to be a Catholic Native American cabal, which had been hmm. um, the propaganda um, message uh, later on in the 17th century when 
the Calvert's rule was questioned uh, very deeply. Hmm. And so there were some successes of, of, of conversions um, in, if, from the Jesuits. Um, they did try to make inroads with, say, uh, building a lexicon of, um, of, of languages that uh, could provide uh, later Jesuits uh, to, to, to communicate. There was certainly uh, trade um, between uh, Native Americans and uh, the Maryland colonists. Um, but um, the, the prospect of vast, vast kind of um, baptism and so on, that the kind that their predecessor, uh, St. Francis Xavier, had in other um, places um, was, was not materialized. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You talk a lot about John Locke and his denial of toleration to Catholics. Was he influential on New World policies in the subsequent century? Well, in the case of, of Maryland and other colonies like Pennsylvania and uh, to a lesser extent Rhode Island and so on, where, where Catholics had a presence in uh, the English colonies, um, the toleration policies that we find there were certainly not influenced by John Locke. Um, you know, the, the, the rulers of these colonies uh, did not read uh, John Locke and say, right, he has it uh, and we should institute this, this sort of uh, tolerationist regime. In our country, uh, Locke's influence, uh, insofar as uh, there is a, a, a significant influence in America, happens later in the 18th century, when we find uh, thinkers, revolutionaries like Samuel Adams um, using Locke, um, but not using Locke to say we should have uh, toleration for all Christians, but using Locke to, to um, as a, as a kind of cudgel against Catholics, uh, particularly Canadians. Um, who uh, presented themselves as uh, what he called imperium and imperio, right? A state within a state, which threatened the very existence of, of a country. That is to say, the Pope's power loomed larger um, than any civil authority. And so uh, Locke's, Locke's work is uh, very much part of the story later on. And, and what I want to suggest about John Locke, and this is confirmed in Geoffrey Collins' um, uh, uh, excellent new work on the subject, is that although Locke um, countenanced um, it theoretically the possibility that Catholics could be tolerated, he ultimately came down in favor, as he says in the letter concerning toleration, that uh, Catholics can't, um, precisely because they deliver themselves up to a foreign prince, and he means here the Pope. And so um, in both theory and practice, Lockean political um, uh, arrangements would, um, would deny Catholics uh, that kind of toleration. And what's fascinating about the American Republic is that although the American founders knew of Locke's arguments, uh, they decided in favor of, of toleration, and not just toleration, not just deigning to grant um, Catholics some kind of um, uh, tenuous existence, 
but uh, full religious liberty, at least at the federal level. Were American Catholics bound to have a different attitude toward papal authority than European Catholics did, just by virtue of distance? Were the founders flexible on, on this issue because y you got a gigantic ocean between, uh, I mean, these Catholics are, are not the danger that, that, that they are in France, say. Well, I think there's something to that argument, Mark. Um, I think distance certainly puts uh, uh, someone's authority in perspective. The, the further you are away from uh, a center of, of authority, the less you might feel bound by it. Um, but that is not fully explanatory. Of course, um, the colonists were as far away from uh, Rome as they were from London, you might say. And yet, um, for a whole century, if not more, uh, the colonists continued to pledge allegiance uh, to the English king and later queen that um, defy distance. And so I think we need to search for a better explanation here. And I think that explanation, which forms the core of this book, is that Catholics became American because they declared independence from the Pope. And I think this is a very surprising um, uh, turn of events because we're used to, especially after the First Vatican Council, to see uh, Catholics as, uh, to use the, the later term, ultramontane. That is to say, uh, Catholics who uh, see the Pope as infallible, having infallible spiritual uh, teaching authority on faith and morals uh, by himself, um, and having a kind of spiritual authority um, that reaches even into uh, temporal or, or civil affairs. Not temporal power itself, but having the kind of spiritual authority that, as it were, um, says something about um, the politics of, of a country. Think, for instance, of um, John Paul II um, uh, railing against communism, right, in his native Poland, uh, going there and, um, and trying to... Um, uh, improve the lives of, of, of the Poles, and as it were, getting into the political affairs, even as Pope. And so I think we're used to seeing Popes in this light, right, this sort of um, ultramontane view. Um, but what the book does is uncover a, a longer tradition uh, of what's called uh, anti-papalism, and its most um, uh, venerable expression of that is, is conciliarism. And here we find uh, I think, uh, the core of, of these American Catholics. They believed that the Pope does not have infallible teaching uh, spiritual authority in uh, faith and morals. Um, he can say uh, proper things, but it's only infallible uh, when declared in a council, like Vatican I, Vatican II. Um, and he does not have the power to intervene in temporal affairs, say, of English affairs or American affairs. If you hold these two beliefs, then you sort of empty out the set of objections uh, that John Locke articulated against Catholics. There's really no more uh, reasons left to deny them uh, liberty, uh, civil and religious liberty. And uh, that sort of tradition, uh, the conciliarist tradition, um, provides Catholics a, 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 an opportunity um, to present themselves as good subjects or later good citizens, right? Those who are not going to be like Guy Fawkes. Was there an identifiable position among Catholics for or against slavery? Well, 
slavery, the slavery question is very complicated, of course, because um, many Catholics in um, uh, many of the prominent Catholics in early America held slaves. Uh, the figures in my book, um, especially Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence, um, held uh, hundreds of slaves. He in- inherited um, uh, them from his uh, father, uh, but then um, acquired more slaves, uh, sold them, um, presented uh, uh, very precise instructions on how to discipline them. Um, and even his uh, second cousin, uh, the bishop, John Carroll, the first bishop of Baltimore, um, uh, hold, held at least one or two slaves, although he called um, them his servants. Uh, the Jesuits famously held slaves in their corporation um, and uh, sold them, as we now know, um, in order to uh, uh, increase uh, their, their, um, their resources for Georgetown. And so there was a, a very complicated set of positions that Catholics drew with regard to slavery. One of them was that it's a kind of uh, um, tolerable, you might say, uh, but not ideal situation. Um, that is to say, Charles Carroll, when he inherited them, um, believed that he did not have uh, the, 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 um, the, the ability to manumit them or give them a better existence than what they, what they have. Um, we, we find these positions abhorrent today, um, but I think that's, that's, what, that's what they were sort of trying to deal with, which was uh, to continue as lended gentry, you might say, um, to increase their station in life, and cru- crucially, um, present themselves as not slaves themselves, right? I mean, slaves can't own slaves. And one of the, um, one of the criticisms of Catholics but there was, is that they were slaves. They were slaves to the Pope. They, were, um, uh, they had a despotic mind. And so, although they're never clear about this, they never sort of publicly articulate this, but one of the arguments of the book is, is that they um, could present themselves as reliable, white citizens, right, by owning slaves. And this is a particularly Southern phenomenon. Um, and um, the Jesuits, likewise, um, were able to promote their uh, missionary efforts, as it were, on the backs of slaves. And we don't receive a very clear condemnation of uh, slavery and the slave trade until later uh, in the 19th century. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they try to make some exceptions. Some of the um, Jesuits say that uh, one ought to baptize all one's slaves, but um, the Carols don't. Um, other Maryland Catholics do. So it's a very complicated story. Uh, you know, the book is, I should tell our listeners, this is a, a, a lengthy, deeply researched study of Catholicism in, in the colonial period. There's a much, much more to say, but I've, I've got to get to our final question. Final question, Michael. Uh, did Catholics recognize the First Amendment very quickly as an extraordinary occasion for them? I think they did. One of the interesting parts of the uh, First Amendment is that there were two Catholics who helped shape it. Charles Carroll Carrollton, as I mentioned before, um, was a uh, a U.S. senator at the time from Maryland, 
And his second cousin, Daniel Carroll, uh, who's the brother of Bishop John Carroll, um, was uh, a congressman at the time. And they helped finalize the, the final text of the First Amendment. And um, unfortunately, we don't have detailed records of why the framers chose the particular words that they did in that final text. But we do know that two Catholics were there at the table. And we should just pause there and, and reflect on how extraordinary that is, insofar as that Catholics were not even allowed um, to, to join what would be their counterpart uh, in England, the Parliament. So that, that marks an extraordinary transformation in two ways. One is that Catholics were amenable to this kind of juridical separation of church and state and religious liberty. Um, what people have before said that uh, Catholics only uh, discovered in Second Vatican Council. Um, so that's the first remarkable transformation. The second is that um, non-Catholics were um, willing to give Catholics a seat at the table. The other important point, and this is, uh, this is also a, a new insight in the book, is that the, the, the history, the first history that we have of the First Amendment, that is to say the Congressional Register, the document that all scholars look at when they want to discern what the generating history was of the First Amendment, that document was written by a Catholic. His name was Thomas Lloyd. He was a journalist. He attended the same college in, in France as the Carrolls did. In fact, he was taught by Bishop John Carroll himself. And he learned shorthand and made um, a living, or tried to make a living, I should say, um, by, by uh, this kind of um, practice in, in, in New York. And he drafted the first uh, history of the First Amendment. And let me just close on this one uh, interesting textual um, analysis. Thomas Lloyd gave a particular, um, you might say, uh, space for Daniel Carroll's speech on the First Amendment. Daniel Carroll is the only one to unambiguously affirm what James Madison had proposed. And James Madison and Daniel Carroll were friends. And uh, Daniel Carroll gave a, a speech uh, in support of the, the rights of conscience, as he says. Now, Thomas Lloyd, in Thomas Lloyd's hand, we have a kind of uh, soaring oratory about this text, whereas others, it says sort of, as Jerry said, or as Mr. Madison uh, said, it says, it, the, the report says, Mr. Carroll, as the right of conscience are, it's, it, it, he elevates it, I argue, to a kind of oratory. And that would be no surprise. They would have attended the, um, the Feast of, um, of Our Lady um, on that Saturday, um, in New York. Uh, they would have all known each other quite well. Um, and I see this as um, a kind of what Jill Lepore in, in another context calls a literal advantage, right? Catholics sort of staking their claim on the First Amendment and seeing it as a momentous occasion, as it was. The book is Our Dear Bought Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Professor Biden, Breidenbach, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure, Mark. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.